This is APB Behind the Badge, taking you inside the real-life stories of police officers who have proudly served their communities. Here's your host, former police chief Mark Spahn. Today's story was born out of the tragedy at Ground Zero in New York City on September 11th, 2001. Most people know the details, and those who are old enough remember exactly where they were when they heard the horrific news. Today, America has experienced one of the greatest tragedies ever witnessed on our soil. In this episode, you're going to hear from two brave men who lived through those events. New York City PD Detective Sergeant Jerry Kane grew up in Brooklyn. As a young man, he figured he'd probably go to work for the phone company, as many of his relatives had. It was at a fateful Mets game in 1984 when the New York Police Department was handing out flyers, encouraging people to sign up for the police test. Jerry applied in June 1984. He took the test in December of that year, and by July 1985, he was in the police academy. Jerry started working in Midtown and eventually worked in anti-crime, intelligence, and detective divisions. Then in 2000, he's transferred to the police commissioner's office where he handles visiting dignitaries and responds to all major incidents. We begin our story on the morning of 9-11. Here's Detective Sergeant Retired Jerry Kane. On 9-11, I was supposed to pick up a guy named Sir John Stevens. He was the commissioner. He was the commissioner of the police of the metropolis. So he ran the London Metropolitan Police Service, which everybody knows is Scotland Yard. I worked late the night before, so I just decided to go in late. That's one thing that saves my life. When the first plane hit, the detective that worked with me called me on, on the next tell and said, it's a huge explosion. I'll meet you there. Now, I'll tell you, as I'm racing in, you know, I've been in car chases. I've gone lights and sirens because some cop is screaming on the radio. They used to shoot out. For your chief to say we're at war was chilling. I started doing an inventory of what I had on me and what I had in my car that would prepare me for war. And it actually flashed through my mind for a brief second, because I can see the towers out in the distance and the black smoke. It looked just like the USS uh, Arizona from Pearl Harbor. It looks like a war zone to Detective Kane. And if it wasn't real enough already, things were about to get worse. On my way in, the second plane hit, which I got to hear the most chilling thing you could imagine on the radio, the chief of department of the NYPD gets on on the radio and, the, and we have a command and control center, it's called operations. And he says, car three with an emergency transmission. Car three's got four stars on his shoulder. So she's like, go ahead, car three. And he says, have operations notify the Pentagon. The city is under attack. At 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center. At 9.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 hit the South Tower. At 9.15 a.m., Sergeant Jerry Kane is on the scene at Ground Zero. I go up now to the towers. I'm standing right in front of the towers, and the jets come overhead. Let me tell you something. When the Air Force showed up, uh, that was scary, frankly. I mean, this wasn't an air show. We've all gone to an air show, right? We're taking our kids to an air show. It's different when they show up and they mean business. 
Uh, they show up. However, it was a good feeling because no more planes were going to crash into our buildings. I knew those guys had that part up there covered. Jerry doesn't know it, but the South Tower will only be standing for another 45 minutes. He is faced with the horror unfolding before him. So, the, the, I mean, the two buildings, they're huge. I mean, they're, they're freaking huge. I'm standing at the foot of these things. They're both fatally wounded. I didn't know they were fatally wounded. And one of the buildings has people jumping out of it. And you, you, we're, you could track them all the way down. It did occur to me at that moment that the brain is only built to like take in so much data. And I'm probably taking in more data than the brain can handle. And I, I decided that uh, I was only going to really put a lot of brain power into anything I could put my hands on. I can't touch the, the planes, the jets, anybody up there, you know, a thousand feet above me. People cross the street, I can't touch them. But if you came in front of me and you were going the wrong way and I had to take you by the shoulders and direct you, turn you the right way, I could do that. I'll put brain power into that if, if I have to. I don't know if it was good or bad for my mental health, but I think it was the right thing to do at the time. The world now knows that America is under attack. By this time, thousands of people are desperately trying to flee the area. But first responders, including Detective Sergeant Jerry Kane and 17-year-old high school student Jonathan Stewart, actually run into it. Jonathan had always wanted to help people, so he'd recently received EMT training. Here's Jonathan Stewart. So when that happened, I got the alert from, I had a, a two-way pager at the time. So I got the news alert. So the only number I had to call at the time was our training command, which is at Fort Totten. And I was asking, like, what do we do? Where do we go? And it was pandemonium. The person on the phone was just like, just go there. Just go there. And that's what I did. So Jonathan Stewart went to the towers and he witnessed the chaos. Shortly after I got there, like we were pairing up, people were helping individuals out the door. There was a little bit of standing around. Again, it was a chaotic scene, if you can imagine being right there. In the process of everything, that's when the first tower came down. St. Peter's was refuge from where I was standing, and that was the closest place that I can get in and get safe. It's now 9.50, just 54 minutes after the first plane crashed into the South Tower. Jerry Kane was sent to the South Tower to find the FBI agent in charge of the New York field office. What he sees is something out of a war zone. Both towers engulfed in smoke and flames, debris falling into the street. And he sees desperate people in the North Tower, people he cannot help. I find my way to the police commissioner and he sends me to go find Barry Moore. Barry Moore runs the FBI for New York. The FBI has 2,000 people in New York City. It's the biggest office in the FBI. I go find where the FBI is rallying up, and they tell me that he's in the South Tower. But I go trotting down towards the South Tower, and I'm pretty freaking close. And I'm trying to figure out how to enter the building without having any debris fall on me. Both buildings had debris coming off them. The North Tower had people coming off of it also. The South Tower did not have jumpers, but it did have parts that were falling off of it. You know, you can hit with a piece of a five-pound piece of aluminum that falls a thousand feet. It's gonna cut you in half. It's 
Jerry Kane is in the street as the South Tower begins to fall. I was about to make a dash for the corner of the building when someone else is coming down and I quick look up and I see. I was like maybe 150 feet from the base of it and it's a 1500 foot building. So it's uh, pretty bad. I thought I had two seconds, maybe three to run. And uh, I actually had about eight seconds. So I ran like two seconds and got behind uh, an NYPD truck that's like the size of an ambulance. And then it was one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And I'm like, I should have kept running. But I didn't, you know, this was it. This was just like uh, playing poker. I, my chips were now in the center of the table. There's nothing I could do. I knew I couldn't run again. Uh, like running was over now. The building came down. I tell, I told this story to people. It was the absolute loudest sound you'll ever hear in your life. You'll never hear a sound like that. I don't care if you live to be 300 years old. Then the dust cloud just enveloped you. And that was 150 million pounds of pulverized gypsum board and concrete and glass. And there was other stuff that was like gravelly. And you just get, and of course, tons and tons of paper. And you got buriedness. And when I say buriedness, I was I didn't have to be dug out. I was able to just like stand up and get this crap off me myself. But now you went from the loudest noise ever to the quietest quiet ever. And I am telling you, it was the quietest quiet ever. Ask anybody that was there. They'll tell you it was freaking eerie. Jonathan experiences the same eerie quiet. New Yorkers really kind of get it. You know, when people say, you know, New York City is the city that never sleeps, we know the details of that. We know there's never a quiet moment in New York. We know that something's always moving, something's always loud. But just imagine New York completely fired. It is dark during the daytime. It is probably something of biblical proportions that's what happened. So everyone is really kind of processing what just happened. It's 10 a.m. and the South Tower is down. Here's Jerry. It, it's challenging. You don't know if you're dead or alive, right? And I did realize I was alive. I was choking to death. Literally, I had, I had taken a breath and the the stuff which was like fine like flour jammed my throat by reflex i took a second breath that made it worse i wasn't quite sure if i was going to be able to get it out of my throat i almost gave up and then i was like i'm not giving up yet and i i, I was able to hack it out and then i started crawling away crawled north about a block and then i walked like another block so i started out at like fulton street and church which is on the east side of the property. I had originally, when I first showed up, the thing I was on the west side of the property. And I ended up at church in Barclay Streets, which is St. Peter's Catholic Church. And that's where I ended up taking shelter. This is the first time that Sergeant Jerry Kane and 17-year-old Jonathan Stewart will meet. 
Jonathan, who had recently completed EMT training, is inside St. Peter's Church, looking at the chaos unfolding outside. He spots a man who's covered with debris and disoriented. Here's Jonathan. I remember saying, like, someone has to go get that guy. He's just laying out there. And I'm looking, I'm saying this because I'm like, yeah, someone has to go get him. And then it's finally like, screw it. I'm going because someone has to go. So, I, you know, I rush out there and I go and I'm like, you can't be out there. And even in like his disheveled, he gives me this, duh, like I know this. The dust was settling and I didn't realize that the dust was settling because I had had my jacket. I wrapped my jacket around my head. He uses a filter. My man, John, John Stewart, he was a high school kid. There's four adults in this kid. He's 17 at the time. They go, hey, there's someone out there. And none of them made a move for me. And the kid came and got me. So he grabs me by the wrists. He said something pretty funny to me. He goes, he goes, hey, man, you can't be out here. And I went, yeah, no crap. No one could be out here, right? So we're going up these steps. I go, where are we going? And he goes, a church. The North Tower was still up, by the way. And I was not that far from the North Tower. But I don't know. There's something psychological about being inside a building and being inside a church that made me feel good. And, uh John didn't know if it was, he, he told me it was a church, but he didn't know if it was a Catholic church. And I wasn't being, you know, picky. You know, I would have gone into any place to tell you the truth. I needed water really, really, really bad. So I get inside the front door and I just sweep my arm out. I can't see a thing. My eyes are so full of dust. I can't see anything. And I find the holy water and I put it, I put it in my hand. And I think I actually goggled first with it. I threw it in my mouth and I goggled and spit. And then I took a handful with one eye and a handful on the other on the other eye. So it is a little different to have this near-death experience. And I thought and I really did think I was checking out there. And now you're in this beautiful church. And uh, you know, I thought ten thousand people had died. And it just goes to show you how many people we got out of the building. We got like twenty five thousand us, you know, the fire department, port authority police, other good actors, you know, people, volunteers, and it should have been 10,000, but the, the evacuation really, really was amazing. So I thought there was 10,000 people dead, and I'm in this church, and there's like five or six of us now, and I'm like thinking, wow, we're the six going to heaven? And I was like, well, if there was 6,000 people in the church, maybe I could get in on the back of the line, but, but if there's just six out of 10,000, I kind of knew I was alive then. While Sergeant Kane and Jonathan began working feverishly to help people, a medic came over to take Jerry's blood pressure. His pressure was sky high, and the medic told him he should go to the hospital before he had a stroke. This medic came over, he takes my pressure, my pressure was through the roof, he thought I was going to have a stroke. He told me I have to go to the hospital. I was like, dude, do you see what's going on out there? I'm not going to the hospital. I got calm, and then I did what I was trained to do. I'm a police sergeant. I tell people what to do, whether they like it or not. So I was having able-bodied men go no more than 50 feet from the front door, either direct people in or help people that weren't ambulatory. And I didn't want them going more than 50 feet because the North Tower was still standing. And I felt responsible for these people. I'm sending them out there. I don't want people getting you know, far afield from this place of safety we have. And... I had a nurse and a medic, and I really thought, like, you know, we're in uncharted territory here, right? And I'm like, shit has to get done. 
I told the nurse and the medic that I was authorizing them to do whatever they thought they had to do. And I was giving them the authority, like by my authority, which is no authority. I have no authority to give that authority to anybody. But really, it's almost like an end of world type of situation we're all living through at this moment. We're in this little square mile where like it is like the end of the world in our little square mile that we're living in. So I was like, you know, if they've got to stop caring for someone to care for someone else, and that means that person is going out of the picture, but they know they can't take care of them anyway. I, I didn't want them to feel guilty about it. You know, they, they've only got two hands each and there's only two of them and the victims are coming in constantly. Most of them though just needed what I did, which is water and an opportunity to catch a breath. Sergeant Kane begins to look for resources to help others. He tells Jonathan to start ripping up anything made of cloth that they can use for bandages and breathing masks. But they're inside a Catholic church, and the only cloth around are holy vestments, clergy robes, altar pauls. I remember we were running through the church and we're like ripping up garments. I think even at one point, I'm scared to like rip up stuff. These are like holy garments that he gives me the okay to, but I'm still not realizing who he is. Like, I don't know. He's just a person on the street at this point, right? That I helped inside. So we're running around, we're running around. But then I noticed there's something different because he starts giving out orders. Jonathan now realized that this guy giving orders, Jerry, was a cop. But more than that, this guy was a leader. You know the difference when when, when a cop says something and other cops listen and they work. And again, that was like the, the moment too. It was just like, oh, this is not just someone off the street. It was someone in an authority position. Because again, let, let's look at the difference. Hey, someone has to go get that guy. I don't even think it registered. But when he starts like literally saying that this is what we need to do and this is what can be done, like people listen. It's a big difference. You know, 17 year old says something, mm, it doesn't make it in the air. Jerry says something, people move. The gravity of the situation is not lost on Jonathan. While I'm not a Catholic, one has to understand that being in the doors of that church was probably the only time that I felt safe. It was symbolic, but it wasn't. God was in that building. And to even go and now holy garments, I'm like, yes, we need it right now. I don't know, you know, I we need masks, we need whatever the case may be. You know, people are just generally bleeding around the place. What do we do? So me and the kid, me and the kid, me and John, sorry, John, you're out there. I was an old altar boy and uh, I knew exactly where the sacristy was, which is the room off the altar where the priest prepares before mass and got, got in there and I knew what would be in there. There'd be a sink, there'd be flower vases, cruets, uh, there were some chalices in there, there were other, other glassware in there. It was actually two sinks. We had both sinks going. But I know we were blasting water. We were filling everything we could with water and, and getting it out to people. Getting it back, refilling it, getting it back out. I had a knife on me, and I gave it to John, and I said, John, you see that cloth that covers the altar? It's like a tablecloth. It has a name in the Catholic Church that escapes me right now. Take that, cut that into strips. We'll soak it in the water, but it's tie up people tie it around their face. I don't even know if that is helpful in this situation with the dust. It's what you would do in a fire, 
but it seemed like a something that that could be helpful. And he's like, I can't cut that. I go, John, I'm I'm an old altar boy. You can you're you're authorized. And then when he ran out of that, he goes, What should I cut? I go, cut the priest vestments. He goes, I can't do that. So I actually upped my rank. I decided to call myself a retired altar boy. I thought it sounded more official. And I said, John, I'm a retired altar boy. You can do it. And I and I actually thought to myself, until I'm usurped, I'm the ranking Catholic authority in his in his church until somebody tells me otherwise. That's what kind of like sparked me. Like, who is this guy? But uh, yeah, he made that joke. It was even to this day, I kind of laugh at it. But it, for me, I didn't want to. Right. I didn't. It was just like and, you know, if you've ever met him, just his presence of, of what you think a quality leader is. It's never like that dictator, like you're going to do what I say. But it's almost like when he says it, you know, you need to do it. And he, he gives off that presence too. A true, true leader in, you know, the personification of a leader, I would even say. So it was at that moment when he's like given orders. But even just think about something in our heads, the world is coming to an end. And he still finds a moment to make a joke. I didn't value that moment until I was in the military. I reflected later on in life about that. Because when you're in those situations and as in the military, to even like find a little bit of humor when stuff hits the fan, it takes a whole different, it takes a different kind of person, takes a different kind of group. Didn't really value that moment until much later in life that he knew what was going on around him and still he was able to keep his composure. Both Jerry and Jonathan mentioned that it felt like this was the end of the world. They were witnessing unspeakable tragedy, loss of life, but they both realized where they were standing. Even though it was chaotic, everybody was like respectful of that place to make sure we didn't have, you know, we took exactly what we needed and we, you know, it was still done. You know, if you can imagine, it was still done in a respectful manner because you were realizing that the value of what you were using and the meaning and the nature, you know, the meaning of everything. So. How do you explain when you're face to face with God, like, hey, by the way, I know uh, <laughs> I know it was an emergency, but um, I had to, you know, I had to do what I had to do. Sergeant Kane and Jonathan Stewart had been working in unison for several minutes during one of the world's worst tragedies. But at the time, they didn't even know each other's names. I remember running around and they, as we we're like starting to go, we're going to go back out now. Um, he hands me his card and he says, like, if we make it out of this, like, look me up. And I didn't think anything of it. Um, I was physically there at that moment, but mentally I was somewhere else. I'm thinking about where we're going to go next. Because as a matter of fact, uh, we went from there and we kind of set up in the Chase Bank that is a few blocks away. And for a long time, we didn't speak. I think I found his card maybe months after that. I was cleaning up and I found his card and it had a thumbprint right on the edge of it that was still there like as if from all the dust and everything his thumbprint was still on that card and uh we made contact after like i looked him up because we obviously both made it so i was following orders that he gave out in addition to the attacks in new york city a hijacked plane crashes into the pentagon at 9:37, and just before 10:03. A heroic team of passengers and crew on United Flight 93 stormed the cockpit, but the hijackers crashed that plane. 
the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed at 10.28, and Number 7 World Trade Center collapsed at 5.20 p.m. This was one of the darkest days in American history. The terrorist attacks have claimed the lives of almost 3,000 people. Flights have been grounded for the first time in aviation history. U.S. airspace is closed. Smoke continues to rise from where the World Trade Center towers once stood. That evening, President George W. Bush addresses the nation. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. It's now September 12th, about 24 hours after the collapse of the first tower. Jerry and his partner, Detective Pete Fresher, are at ground zero when they notice an American flag stuck on a light pole. It was upside down. That's why we recovered it. It was like stuck up there. We didn't we didn't like the look of it because it looked like the, the distress signal, right? We get it down. We had some soldiers folded. The soldiers were there. And I brought it back to the office. I gave it to Commissioner Carrick. Commissioner Carrick gave it to Mayor Giuliani. Mayor Giuliani gave it to NASA. NASA flew it on the space shuttle in December of 01. And the following year, on Flag Day of 2002, the flag was returned to Ground Zero. And it makes an appearance every year at September 11th memorial events, escorted by NYPD, FDNY, and the Port Authority Police. Jerry is proud that he had a part in that, never thinking that it would become such a profound tradition. I just didn't want uh, a, a photographer to take a picture of an upside-down flag. There's another part of Detective Jerry Kane's story. It's from September 10th, the day before the terror attacks. Jerry's Aunt Helen passed away. Because of all the new restrictions for travel in and out of the city, her wake was delayed. But eventually, calling hours were held. Jerry explained that in the Catholic religion, it's customary that the family will donate robes, vestments, or other religious items to the home church of the deceased. These would have gone to St. Anselm's, where my aunt lived. It's a parish in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. My cousins, Marilyn and Ellen, sent them to St. Peter's because I told them the story. Which, like, look at this. This is 22 years later. It still gets to me. I don't know why. But uh, uh, I just thought that was really wonderful of them. I mean, I just thought it was wonderful. Whenever Jerry Kane is in Manhattan and in the area of that special church where he took refuge on 9-11, he stops by. Uh, just this year, last year, I go to Ground Zero every 9-11. I always go to St. Peter's, say a few prayers. I have a thing whenever I'm in downtown Manhattan, if I'm near St. Peter's, I just walk in and I always put $100 in a poor box. It's, I got to talk to this young priest, nice guy. And the caretaker of the property. And the caretaker of the property today is the caretaker of the property back in 2001. And he was like, you're that guy? You're the guy that did all that stuff? And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, no, man. I, I thought I was in trouble. He goes, no, man, you were 100% okay. And the priest was like, absolutely, you were okay. He goes, that's why God put that stuff there, to be used, right? It's not a decoration. 
There were some newspaper stories written about the actions of Jerry Kane and Jonathan Stewart on 9-11. And while neither of them sought out public attention, they were each grateful that they were able to connect with each other when things finally settled down. Jonathan was finishing up his senior year in high school and had confided in his guidance counselor about his experiences at Ground Zero with Sergeant Jerry Kane. A teacher of his reached out to me like in 2002 and asked me if I'd write a letter because he was up for an award that a newspaper was giving out. So I wrote a big long letter and he, he actually got this award. The award was actually the Liberty Medal from the New York Post. Jonathan's high school teacher actually reached out to Detective Jerry Kane a second time. So then the teacher reached out to me and asked me if I'd be a commencement speaker at his high school graduation. And this was was for like a second chance high school in the Board of Education system. It was probably 70 kids graduating, I think. I had a thing written in my suit pocket. I'm like, what am I going to say to these kids? And then it hit me. So when it came time for me to talk, I got a big mouth and I didn't need the microphone. And I got off the stage and they had the, the boys and girls separated on the, by the center aisle. I said to them, I said, when you're my age, you might run into someone who thinks that they're better than you because they live in a nicer town or maybe they drive a nicer car or they have a better job, they think. And I want you to know that you went to high school, and this is true, a mile and a half from ground zero in 2002. You are better than they are. Never forget that ever. And I meant it. Because like I could only imagine what it was for like for these kids to go to school. They had to go through checkpoints and they could see the, the ruins smoldering down the block. I mean, it's just amazing. And uh, I gave a two-minute speech telling them that I really admired them. And I, I do admire them. Detective Jerry Kane wanted to inspire the graduating class with his remarks. And that he did. Jonathan Stewart already knew of the detective's strength and determination. But on graduation day... Jonathan got to share this special person with others. So part of the story, too, is that um, he got to meet my whole family, too. At that time, he spoke. He got to meet at one time, like, everyone that I cared about, including friends and family. But a lot of people outside of, like, if you knew about it in the newspapers, um, he was still like this person. But this is where everybody got to meet the person. Everybody really got to meet the person. But again, that kind of solidified his place in my life because there are certain people that you cannot write your life story without including them because it wouldn't be accurate. It wouldn't be complete. But even with the graduation, I can't think about my high school graduation without mentioning him because, again, he's part of that story. I cannot mention a large part of my life because it has to, it circles back to our relationship. Even like with him speaking to my high school graduation, when the newspapers pick up the story and the, the different media outlets, well, scholarship comes out of that. I'm now in college. So even when I think about college, like I'm on a full scholarship to school. Well, how did that happen? I'm not always one for the attention, but that is the one exception. It felt good. 
right? It, it felt good. It was a little nerve wracking because in addition, like you have this in individual here, but then it's like, you know, you don't want to distract from other people, but it felt really amazing. But then it, again, it was motivating. It was, it was, if you're going to like finish high school, I mean, hell, that's how you're going to finish it. Right. Like, I mean, even to this day, like I just, it was one of those days, even in military, we, we say that there are certain days that you will remember for the rest of your life, your marriage, the day you got your fish, that's our like warfare pin. Right. And for me, it's those days. It's my high school graduation. Those were like, if I hands down, like, oh, and when my daughter was born, sorry, <laughs> the, the fourth one. Right. Um, but it was awesome because this is how you're going to end it. This is how, when you're going to walk away, this is like history. After high school, Jonathan went on to college and then went to work for a consulting firm in Rye, New York. But he said he always had a burning desire to serve in the military, inspired by the events of 9-11 that he experienced firsthand. I was sitting at my desk. I was working for this consulting firm in Rye. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I was working on this spreadsheet. And I, and I just, past couple of nights, I was like, you have to do it. I got up, I think I'm gonna join the military. Yeah. And to really just even give you a picture, like I'm like out of shape. I'm like huge. I'm like, I couldn't run a block. But I'm like, I'm gonna join the military. I'm like, I have to do it. Because even for the years that followed after that, I saw my I saw my brothers and sisters joining that fight right away. And it was something about it, like I felt like I wasn't doing enough. So I even had that experience to see it firsthand. I just felt like left out too. Like there's more to be done. You know, at this point, Iraq and Afghan are full, in full swing. The partner at the time was just like, you know what? Take the night off. Maybe it's stress. And then I came in the next day and I was just like, I had my resignation letter and I was just like, I'm going to do it. It took less than a year after that. And I dedicated my life to getting in shape. I probably lost somewhere upwards of about 80 pounds in less than a year. <laughs> I was dedicated dedicated. I literally went from not being able to like walk a block because that was how out of shape I was. I was, I think I was nearing something like 300 pounds. I was really big. I, I couldn't run a block. I was, had all these health issues, right? From my weight. And I dedicated every single day. You know, I have to get into the fight. They didn't even know what that meant. Jonathan made his goal weight. And he also knew what he wanted to do in the Navy. Because of his EMT background, he told the recruiter he wanted to be a corpsman. The recruiter suggested that he could work on a submarine. And I remember, wait a minute, subs. I never even thought about it. And I knew, no, I knew people that were in the Navy, Army, everything. I never met a submariner before. Never met a submariner before. And I was just like, there we go. Subs, let's do it. Yeah, that was it. I joined. Jonathan knew he was shipping out to boot camp, but his mother didn't know about it yet. He feared that she'd try to talk him out of it, but he was still concerned about leaving her. And it was such an emotional thing because, like, I had never really been away from my mom for too long. I'm now going off to do, who knows what I'm going off to do? I don't know, but I'm going off. So, well, Jerry was there for me leaving. And not only was it Jerry there, it was Jerry's wife, Madeline, was there. 
That was the first time I ever met her. Now, mind you, me and Jerry have been in interviews together. Of course, we're, we are now bonded for life, but I had never met his wife up until that point. My mom's crying, but I remember like Jerry and Madeline being there as support for my mother. And I remember Jerry giving me some like phone cards, which really came in handy because we didn't have phone cards. And, you know, it, it enabled me to call home when I was in boot camp. But I remember Madeline coming up to me and saying, thank you for bringing my husband home. All I can think about at this point is like, dude, do not cry because you have to get into a bus with these guys. Like, and I have to spend the night with them. But I remember like them being a comfort system for my mother when I was leaving. Cause of course she's like distraught. Like she, she just heard about this like a day or two before now I'm going, but you know, to have that meeting at that point as well, like meeting Madeline and my, it, it was a reminder of like why you were doing this, and then I'm off to boot camp. The circumstances of how a police detective and a teenage Samaritan came together on 9-11 to help people they didn't even know is truly special. Their story is one of duty, humanity, respect, and a friendship that will continue until the end. Um, again, when you were there, you realized that this wasn't, there was no division, New York, uh, NYPD, FDNY, every responder there. It wasn't like they were cherry picking who got help. It was humans helping humans. And humans in particular, with the officers and the firefighters, they knew they had a job to do. It wasn't about any kind of agenda. They were there to do the job. So forever, do we have things that we can work on? Yes, absolutely. But it takes partnership, it takes community. And just us staying so close. Yeah, we, we even disagree on things, right? But when you start from a position of respect and compassion and empathy, there's nothing that we can't discuss because we, we come into that conversation, any conversation we've had with that respect and things. And that experience just shows us that also when shit hits the fan and people attack America, trust and believe. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that in protection of this country, of our city, there's no division. Like we have to stand tough. I met a Pearl Harbor survivor one time after 9-11, and he told me, your job is to make sure people never forget. I, I'm glad that every year on December 7th, you'll see on the news, they'll talk about Pearl Harbor. I hope that when I'm gone, that on the news every year on September 11th, it's still mentioned and you know people still remember. It, it can't happen again. It's just too much pain, too much suffering too much trauma, too much bad. It was just the biggest, giant, worst thing ever. And I'm 100% behind the government spending all the money they do to make sure it never happens again. Today, Jonathan and Jerry speak frequently. Jerry retired from NYPD, and Jonathan is a social worker working with middle and high school kids. But they often reflect on their chance meeting and how it's bonded them for life. Here's Jonathan. I'm always thinking about, I've been blessed. Like, so it's always, I'm always running from, you received your blessings, now it's, you know, making sure others receive theirs. So I always look at that, like that experience, as awesome as it was, as a blessing, but it's also a reminder. Like, it came out of the wake of something that wasn't positive. 
And I tell that story as like kind of my theme too. Like a lot of positive came out of a horrible day. Horrible. And it's a challenge at times when we're, we're going through because this country has seen some dark times. But I think that's what makes this country amazing that we've been able to like sit in that and pick out the positives. And we will continue to do that, both at a personal level, together as a country. That's what makes us great. The fact that we can turn the most horrible times and find community, find, you know, friends, families, like that is what like that graduation kind of signified to. Jerry will never forget how Jonathan made a difference in his life. Their chance meeting was the good that came out of a day of tragedy and loss. Here's Jerry Kane. And let's face facts. I mean, you know, probably we would have never, ever met, right? And instead, uh, not only did we meet, but he had such an, an impact on me. He got me to safety, which was important. It was important to be in a place of safety. The sooner you got into a place of safety, the sooner you could reorganize your thoughts and and start to be a, a part of the solution and not part of the problem when i was out on the street i was part of the problem once i got inside the church and got myself together i was part of the solution john made that happen without jonathan that doesn't happen a lot of guts i mean he was standing there with four adults and who came and got me the, the high school kid he's just a, a, a great guy jonathan saw a transformation in sergeant kane who went from a dust-covered, blinded, choking victim to a leader in minutes. If you listen to his story, like he he kind of made his penance with God. He was kind of just ready to go. But to literally go from that state where this is it to this is what needs to be done, people make movies about people like that, right? These are figures that we look up to, but this is a real-life person that was able to transition seamlessly from it's all over to let's get the job done and be able to rally people around him in that way, but to be able to be that grounding force, you know, I mean, that grounding presence, I should say, for others around him in that emergency. But you can see why he is Sergeant Jerry Kane. You can see why he's in positions that he's been placed in even before then and then after them. Because again, the world was coming to an end at that point. But this changes the whole trajectory of my life. I go to school and because I go to school, I meet certain friends and now I'm traveling in Europe with these friends. Now I'm being exposed to so many different things. Then it comes back to that chance interaction there, which by the way, I don't think it's chance. I think it is the way the universe, God, sets things up, you meet people for a reason, you're in places for a reason. One of those reasons was certainly for Jonathan to help Jerry. And it was the events of 9-11 that inspired Jonathan to join the military. Jerry can't say enough about Jonathan's courage and strength. Uh, John, to show how resilient and tough he was, he ended up in the United States Navy. I was there the day he got sworn in at Fort Hamilton High School. He now has at least two master's degrees. He might even have three. He's a, a professional social worker. Uh, he's really coughed out a very, very nice life for himself. I was really lucky to run into him. He's a friend. He'll be a friend for the rest of my life. Any one of those people could have ran out, grabbed Jerry, right? 
and then we go on move on our lives we probably never meet i think it was god given god's spirit that it's literally like you have to go right you saw it you have to go and look at what happens after that that's that continued blessing of putting you know doing something positive but also too he's put so much positive into the world he's been the protector of the world's greatest city it was time to like change rules for just a moment and have someone protect him and look over him the same way he's spent a career looking over new york city and did a wonderful job of it so it was in that moment that like he pulls him out from that positive karma bank and it came back because someone had to look out for him he has been part of our family and it, i've never felt as anything less than part of his since then he's always been that that force and no matter what's happening in the world you know what i mean no matter what the political nature of the world is happening we've always maintained that love that respect for each other and that partnership is a lifetime thing this episode is dedicated to those lost in the 9/11 attacks and to the civilians first responders and armed services who courageously went into harm's way in service to our fellow Americans. For more information and show notes, go to apbbehindthebadge.com. APB Behind the Badge is an original Spawn Group production.